I am going to take the theme this month from the song, Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the phrase we're going to consider this morning is this. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. It's unbelievable. It's unimaginable that he would have done that. That he sought us when we were estranged from him and wandering from his fold. I don't know about you, but that is just unimaginable for me to contemplate. It's impossible to, to completely wrap our arms and our minds around the immeasurable love of God that would have moved him to seek us when we were estranged from him, wandering from his fold. Have you ever read a book or, or seen a, a movie or a show that begins at the end of the story and then after the end of the story is given they back up and they tell the first part of the story I'm reading a book about James Garfield right now and that's exactly how that book started it started at the end and then after it told the end it began again to tell the story from his birth going forward well we know the end but we have to back up to the beginning. In the beginning, man was not created to live estranged from God. In the beginning, man was created to be in fellowship with God, to have a perfect relationship with Him. In the beginning, the intimacy between man and God was such that it is said that God walked in the cool of the day, as they were in the garden. Obviously ascribing human terms to God to help us appreciate how God was in fellowship or the close intimate relationship that God had with man. However, Satan and his nefarious work and nefarious acts entered the story. And what's almost unimaginable, and equally unimaginable for us, is that when Satan entered the story, his voice became louder and stronger than God's. Why would Adam and Eve possibly let that happen. But before we point an accusing finger too harshly at them, perhaps we ought to ask the question, why would we let that happen? Why in the world would we let that happen? What would we possibly hope to gain 
by bowing to his solicitations to be seduced by his lies. What will we possibly hope to gain by that? Satan's very, very sly and very subtle. Satan is a very effective liar. He's good at it. And he's been very successful at it. When God created man, he clearly communicated something to man. He said, there's two trees in this garden. And there's one, you can't partake the fruit of that tree. You can take the fruit of the other tree and all the other, all the other benefits of this garden are freely yours. But of this one tree, you can't, you can't take the fruit of that tree. I'm telling you, if you do that, you're going to die. With that threat, that warning by God, again, I ask the question, knowing God would keep his word, why would Adam and Eve possibly possibly eat the fruit of that tree with nothing to gain. Eve was deceived. And she took the fruit and gave to Adam who was with her. Paul will use that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to talk about the order or roles in the family. That the husband is the head of the wife because Eve was deceived. I obviously state this, I'm not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit did not ask Ricky how he thought that ought to go. But I can at least excuse and defend Eve a little bit. There is absolutely no defense for the jughead, for the idiot that Adam was. Furthermore, there's no defense that he who was the man that God gave the woman to, stood there, stood there, and watched her do it. And evidently said not a single word, did not slap her hand away, grab her by the nap of her neck and pull her back and said, I told you, no, don't do that. Instead, he passively, passively went along with what Satan offered and he also took the lie. That's how the story begins. The second part of the story, however, is, and that is, what was God to do now? What possibly, what, what was God to do now? I mean, he put everything they needed right before them, right? They had everything unimaginable to me and you, right? Just this one thing you can't do. And that's the one thing they did do. Now, God having provided everything possible for them, what was God to do? Give up? Was he impotent now? Was Satan more powerful than God? 
Was God at a loss now to say, well, I told you so, and you did it. Now you got to root hog or die poor. It's up to you. I'm out of the picture. It's all on you. What, did, what was God to do? Well, the most amazing thing about what God did involves some amazing, amazing people that become part of the story. God told them, you're going to be put forth from the garden because you have sinned and now you'll be separated from me and now you'll have to earn your living by the sweat of your brow among the thorns and thistles and the woman shall have pain in childbearing and there's still going to be a contest now since you have been passed to her she's going to try to be your head and she's going to wrestle with that but here's what I'm going to do. Satan who lied to you is going to continue to have a lot of success in this world. And there is going to come forth from the seed of woman in the fullness of time under the law the one whose heel Satan shall bruise. And when Satan bruises his heel, it's going to look like Satan has been ultimately victorious. The victory he's going to think he has when he bruises the heel of the seed of woman is going to pale in comparison to this victory he had in the garden. However, when the seed of woman comes, born of woman, under the law, he is going to crush the head of Satan. God could have airdropped. God could have airdropped Jesus into the scene. <clears throat> Jesus could have come any other way. God could have sent an angel. But instead, his son, born of woman under the law, came. And man who should have loved him crucified him. In Matthew chapter 1, in Matthew chapter 1, I want you to look at this amazing group of people that line up here. I want you to see, in this, there's not many mighty. There's not many noble that are called. There's no kings. There's no rulers that are here. These are just simply ordinary people. They're not perfect. They, too, have a very checkered past, which is being kind about some of them. They are sinners. And notice in this list of these amazing people that God includes. He begins by talking about the son of David, the son of Abraham. And goes on with Isaac, goes on with Jacob, and then comes to verse 3. And mentions Judah. 
do you remember Judah, Simeon, and Levi, and Judah's the ringleader in putting their younger brother, who they hate, who they despise, and wanting to kill him, but Reuben talking them out of it, put him into a well instead. And Judah's the ringleader for selling their brother to the Ishmaelites. And Judah's the ringleader for allowing their father to believe the lie that an animal had killed Joseph. Remember Judah? Oh, but there's one other thing. Also remember Judah? When Reuben's real noble, he said, Dad, if I don't come back, my two sons are going to cost Reuben a whole lot. Judah says, if I don't come back, my life for his. Oh, my life for his. But Judah has three boys. Two boys have died. The one's young. And so with Tamar, the daughter-in-law, who according to the Leverite vow, should have had the third son as her husband, Judah said, he's young, I'm not giving him to you. And so Tamar pretends to be a prostitute by the side of the road. Judah's wife has died. And Judah goes to Tamar and gives her his credit card and his driver's license and says, I'll come back for them. But word has come and said, Tamar says, she's got somebody's driver's license and credit card. Judah said, keep it quiet, we don't be embarrassed. Until Tamar presents it. And Judah says, well, it was me. And there were two boys born. One by the name of Perez. Judah begat Perez. And then it continues on. It says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Do you remember who Rahab is? The harlot in the city that hides the spies and lets them down a window and puts a thread in the window to tell who she is and her family is spared. And then it says, Jesse begot David the king and David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah that was Bathsheba. And so now you get the line even more speckled and checkered because now you've got David with Bathsheba after having consented to the hand of Uriah and Bathsheba becoming pregnant and now the baby has died and now since Uriah has died he's going to take Bathsheba and now Solomon is born. And then you come down to verse 10, Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Wait a minute, Manasseh? Ammon? 57 years of corruption ruling the nation that are there? Do you see how this list is so speckled? You go on down, it says in verse 12, And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, 
and shall till be gotten as rubble. What's so significant about Jeconiah? He said to Jeconiah, I will take the signet away from you, write you childless. That doesn't mean he's not going to have more children because he has children. What that means is there's not another one in your lineage that's going to sit on the throne like you did. Until Zerubbabel comes. Do you remember Haggai? The Haggai talks about going and he and Zerubbabel helping get the people off of high center to build the temple. And then it says to Zerubbabel, I will give you the signet ring. I'm going to undo what I promised your grandfather I would not do. I'm going to now give you the ring and your lineage shall be in the lineage of Christ. Do you see these imperfect people that are here? Do you see how, how spotted morally this lineage is? If we'd, be, if we'd have been putting together the lineage of royalty, surely we would not have written that letter. We would not have written that, that lineage. And if there had been something untoward in that lineage, certainly we would have we'd used whiteout or we would have used backspace to get rid of all the names that were there. Surely we'd have highlighted and cut the names out. But notice, these are the people that God started with to bring about undoing what Satan has done. Now, let's pause just a moment, ask ourselves a few questions here. Would we have done that? Would, would, would we have been so gracious and merciful and thoughtful to people like that? We're not talking about righteous people. We're not even talking about good people. We're talking about people who have been enemies. We're talking about people who have cheated. We're talking about people who have lied. We're talking about people who have betrayed. We're talking about people who have been morally untoward in every direction you can get. He starts with Abraham. Abraham and Sarah conspired. Before they ever left Ur the Chaldees, you pretend like you're my sister. I'll pretend like I'm your sister. That did just come about twice off the spur of the moment. They had already planned to do that. Here is a conniving scheme that the father of the faithful began with when he left Ur of the Chaldees. We're talking about people who are deceivers. We're talking about people who have lied about you, who have betrayed. Am I going to give my son from this creation to die for them? Am I going to do that? Not many mighty, not many noble that are there. Am I going to do that? Well, the question may be answered by, can I do that today? Can I do that with someone who has treated me like that today? Again, we're not talking about righteous people. We're talking about people who were enemies. 
We're not talking about good people. We're talking about people who have become estranged. Strangers to God. That's the people we're talking about. Can we not see the the volume of God's grace that is just completely immeasurable and inexhaustible? That God's grace was able to take and undo anything that Satan and his craftiness could possibly perpetrate upon men. And it happened with every generation. His grace extended from the time of that moment in Genesis 3.15 when the promise was made, I'm going to send the seed of the woman and you're going to, he's going to pinch his heel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And finally, Finally, when the time was right, born of woman, under the law, the seed of woman came that would be the savior of the world. And that meant then there had to enter into the picture a little Jewish girl who had found favor with God, a totally nondescript young lady who nobody knew from Nazareth. She's not the princess or the queen elect. She is a peasant girl. That's going to give birth to this Savior. Turn to Romans chapter 5 with me real quickly, please. When I think about the magnitude of this grace, this is so well expressed by Paul in Romans chapter 5. Read this with me, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, what that's saying is Adam introduced sin into the world. And thus, 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 and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. That means I'm guilty of sin because I sin. That does not mean I'm guilty of sin because Adam sinned. I do not inherit that I'm totally depraved because of what Adam had done. Adam's guilty for his sin. I'm guilty for my sin. Adam introduced sin into the world. I introduce sin to my life whenever I choose to sin. That's what he's saying. For under the law, sin was in the world. But sin's not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For while one man's offense, death, reigned through the one, much more of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, (coughs) many were made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace 
much more abounded so that sin reigned in death. Even so, grace reigned through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's saying there is, you take death and sin <coughs> for, all it's in, for all it's worth and stop to breathe and take a drink of water. <coughs> take sin for all it's worth and what he says is it can't stand up to grace. <coughs> it cannot stand up to the awesome grace of God. That brings us to one of the point. That is <coughs> God's love story. God's love story has law, yes. Because that law, there is no sin. But God's love story also has grace and mercy and love. <coughs> the day began like any other day. The sun was shining. Mothers cooking the meals for the day, dressing their children for school. Men gathered in the city square for politics and conversation. There seemed to be a, a lot more people in the town today because there was something else that was anticipated. In the city square, there was going to be a sale. There was going to be an auction. And there was a lady that was going to be auctioned there. She was haggard. Her hair had not been brushed or combed, it looked like, in many days. She's a woman who who probably wouldn't have been welcome under our, whose feet probably wouldn't have been welcome under our family table. She had freely given herself to many men, betraying her husband. And the auction begins. And as the auction begins, the price increases. One man says 15 shekels. That's half the price of a slave. Another man says 15 shekels and over and a half of barley. You won, sir. You won the bid. And people are wondering. What's he going to do with her? Is he going to go out and get her and grab her by the hair of her head and drag her off? I mean, she's you, she's filthy. Is she going to put a rope around her and, and pull her away? What's he going to do with her? He comes to her. And he takes off his robe and puts his robe around her. And she looked up at the kind man who had taken his robe and wrapped around her 
and it was her husband. He said, come home. Come home. It's time to come home. This is the man that she had betrayed. This is the man she had lied to. This is the man she had been dishonest with. This is the man she had cheated. And he said, this is enough. It's time to come home. You see, the story of Jose and Gomer is not about a love story of husband and wife. It's not a story about marriage. It's a story about how God felt about Israel giving themselves to other gods. And he says to Hosea, I want you to take a wife of harlotry. And he takes her, but Gomer cheats on him repeatedly. And then God says, I want you to buy her back. And what God does is he uses Hosea to try to tell Israel, it's time to come on. Look at the language in Hosea with me just a moment. Look in chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her to the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Do you get that? I will allure her. When you're dating someone and you're really interested in them, what do you try to do? You try to allure that person, right? Do you speak harsh words? You say, you know, you're the ugliest thing I ever saw, but will you come with me anyway? No, you speak words of comfort. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up from the land of Egypt. In that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and the Lord will call me my master. What's the significance of what he says in verse 15? I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. The valley of Achor had not been a door of hope. The valley of Achor had been a valley of judgment, a valley of death. Look in verse 19 of chapter 2. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, and mercy. This is Israel who has betrayed him. He's saying, I will betroth you in loving kindness and mercy. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. And look at verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboam? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I'll not destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Did God have every right to destroy them like he did Abba and Zeboam? Did he have every right to come with terror? Yes. Would anybody have blamed him? No. 
Look at what he says. How can I give you up? He's saying to Israel, you have betrayed me. You have sought other gods. You have given yourself freely to other gods. How can I give you up? I can't give you up that easily. And he says to Hosea, go buy her back. You can't give her up that easily. And so he comes to chapter 12. And chapter, I'm sorry, chapter, chapter 14. And verse 1. Oh, Israel, return to your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive graciously, for he will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Verse 4, I will hear, I will hear the, heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow in the lily and lengthen the roots like Lebanon. Verse 8, Ephraim shall say, what shall I do anymore with idols? I am heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. With his kind of love, he's going to say, what in the world can I do with Ephraim? What possibly can I have to do with idols? With a God like this, what can I possibly have to do with idols? That's Hosea seeking Gomer. And that's God seeking Israel. What was God to do? He made this love story. And said, I'm going to lure you. I'm not going to give you up. I'm not going to turn my back and walk away from you. You may have turned your back and walked away from me. But I'm going to remove your backsliding. And the result is going to say, how can I possibly walk away from a God like that? So now, just a moment. Listen to these words. O thou fount of every blessing, to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me ever to adore thee. May I still thy goodness prove. While the hope of endless glory fills my heart with love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. And thy hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. The beauty and the strength of this old hymn tells us life is a mess. And we have many missteps along the way. It also tells us that life is not easy. What, what it also tells us is God says, I will not give up on you. I will seek you even when you're wandering from my fold. I will not walk away from you. And so the day began like any other. The sun was shining bright. Mothers were getting their children ready for school. They're cooking meals for the day. 
While it was going to work, men gathered around the city square to talk about politics and politics and business of the day. But there was a larger crowd in the city that day because there was a person for sale. And they'd come to see how much the bid would be for that person. This was probably not a person whose feet you'd have under your family table. This was a person who was filthy, who was stained from head to toe, who had betrayed, who had walked away, who had been dishonest. And the bid comes. Except it's not 15 shekels this time. When the bid escalates, finally the bid that wins says, my blood, my blood. And the auctioneer says, sir, you have won the bid. And people are wondering, what's the man who offered his blood going to do now with the person that was just sold? Will he take that person and grab them by the hair of that person's head and drag them away? Will he put a rope around that person and pull them away? What will he do? What will he do with that person? He comes and takes off his white robe and wraps around the person he just bought with his blood. And the person looks up at that kind, merciful man. And he sees the Savior as the Savior says, Ricky, it's time to come home. You've been gone too long. It's time to come home. No longer are you a stranger. You wandered from me. But I have sought you. It's time to come home. Don't you see? Jesus sought us when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. The price for our redemption was his blood. How? How can we possibly turn and walk away from an invitation to come home by someone who has rescued us from danger, having interposed his precious blood? How? Don't you see he seeks us earnestly and calls us, come home, come home. I'll make you mended and whole. I'll wash you white as snow. So won't you, won't you come home while we stand and while we sing? Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us 
at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.